If you would take out your Bibles and open them up to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is where we're going to be this morning. And we are going to read verses 1 through 17, although we will not spend time in all of the text. We'll focus our attention beginning around verse 8 or verse 9, but we will read the entirety of this section to build a little context. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17, and when you arrive there, because this is the Word of God and you are the people of God and this is the Lord's Day, would you please stand if you are able to hear from the God who still speaks to us in His Word. Second Samuel 7, beginning in verse 1, hear the words of our God for us. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built a house for me of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house 
and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. A few weeks ago, we introduced a new song written by Sovereign Grace called Hope of the Ages. We sang it just a few moments ago. The themes for our sermon series throughout Advent season have been informed by the chorus of this song, which identifies several promises of God in the Old Testament fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Consider with me for just a moment the chorus again. Hope of the ages, Isaiah's great light, Abraham's offspring, blessing of Jacob, Judah's might, hope of the ages, David's true son, desire of nations, promised salvation, God with us. We began Advent looking together at the promise of Isaiah's great light in Isaiah chapter 9. During the second week of Advent, we discussed the promise of Abraham's offspring, given in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and a host of other passages. Last Lord's Day, we unpacked the promise of Judah's king in Genesis 49. And this morning, we are wrapping up our Advent series, examining the promise of David's son in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. And each week, if you've been with us, you know this, Each week has been extremely predictable. After all, each of these texts and each of these promises serve as a different note in the same song, don't they? They serve as a different page or a different chapter in the same story, a story about God rescuing His people through the incarnation of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning is no different. In fact, if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to use the same essential three questions we have used over the last few weeks in order to unpack this text in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So here are the three questions we're going to ask and answer this morning. Number one, what does God promise in the text? What does God promise in the text? Number two, how does God fulfill His promise in the text? And then number three, in addition to what does God promise in the text, and how does God fulfill His promise in the text, thirdly, we're going to ask and answer the question, how does this promise and this fulfillment apply to us as followers of Jesus Christ this morning? Young worshipers, there are a couple of items I want you to look for, parents and grandparents, I encourage each of you to Encourage your younger worshipers to write down these questions, pay close attention to these questions, and have their Bibles open. Engage with them throughout the sermon. We are, after all, primarily, fundamentally in Scripture, we are a family. And so feel free to engage with your younger worshiper throughout the sermon. Here are the two items, younger worshipers, I want you to pay close attention to. First of all, I want you to notice, what did David desire to do for the Lord in the text? 
What did David desire to do for the Lord in the text? This surfaces really early on. So we're going to see this almost immediately. What is it that David desired to do for the Lord? And then second, God made a promise to David. And there are a number of pieces to this promise as we're going to see in just a few moments. But I want you to be able to answer this question. How did God fulfill that promise? How did God fulfill the promise he made to David? Well, before we begin answering the broader question for the morning, what does God promise in the text? Let me establish a little context for us in verses 1 through 7. At this point in the narrative, because we are, after all, parachuting into an already existing story, so let's situate ourselves together. At this point in the story, David lived in a permanent house. While the ark of God, which you may remember, the ark of God was a representation of the presence of God among his people. The ark of God was housed in a tent. David didn't feel right about this. He lived in a permanent dwelling, and the ark of God was housed in a tent, a temporary dwelling. And out of what appears to be the devotion of David's heart, he expresses a desire to a man, a prophet named Nathan. And here's David's desire. David desired to build a house for the Lord. I don't misunderstand what David is desiring. He knows that heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain the Lord, as Solomon, his son, will pray in 1 Kings chapter 8. He knows that God is not like us. He's not limited by space. He's not limited by time. But he also knows that God has placed his manifest presence among the people of Israel, and in particular, through the Ark of the Covenant. This was a representation of his promised presence. And so what David desires to do is very simply to build a house for the Ark of God, to build a kind of temple, younger worshipers. That was your first question. That's David's desire. And initially, Nathan the prophet, did you notice this? Nathan the prophet initially affirms David, go and do all that is in your heart, O king. But as we read the story, this actually was not a word from the Lord. By the way, you know, some would say Nathan shouldn't be speaking out of turn as a prophet. I'm not sure about that. A prophet was not someone who always and everywhere spoke infallibly. It appears that Nathan isn't necessarily speaking as a prophet. He's just responding in the moment. But it's later that the word of the Lord actually comes to Nathan. We are told later that night, the Lord actually corrects Nathan's response to David and David's desire. Nathan must now go back to David and tell him that he is not to build a house for the Lord. It won't be David who does this. Rather than, and this is really the structure of the text, as you might see in just a few moments, rather than David doing something for God, God's going to do something for David. And we're going to see this through a number of verbs. I won't point out all of them. But in your English text, they likely appear in the future tense. They're imperfect in Hebrew. It, it's translated, I will, I will, I will. And what God is saying to David is, no, no, you won't do much of anything. 
I'll do it all. You will not be building a house for me. I, rather, will build a house for you. Okay, so that's the context for us. Now, let's turn to our questions broadly. The first question I want us to answer together is what does God promise in the text? And if you're taking notes, a number of subpoints here. You're used to this over the last few weeks. We're going to look at six aspects of God's promise. We could have done seven. I merged two. I'm still torn about that. Seven would have been a better number, wouldn't it? Oh, well. Maybe we'll change mid-sermon. We'll see. Six aspects of God's promise. In verses 8 through 17, and as I mentioned, most of these are introduced with the phrase, I will. There's one exception. There's one exception where God says, he will, he shall. We'll get to that in just a few moments. First, first aspect, what God promises. Now, remember, we're asking and answering the question, what does God promise in the text? First, God promises David a great name, a great name. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, notice this, I took you from the pasture. Don't forget that, David. You don't take me anywhere. I take you. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, Israel. I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now notice, I will, there it is, I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Now, if you're with us a couple of weeks ago, you may recall that this, this is reminiscent of God's promise to Abram, who would eventually be named Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, God made this promise to Abraham. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name what? Great. So in Genesis 12, God promises to Abraham, I will make your name great. Now, God is maintaining this promise now through David. I will make your name great. Secondly, we're going to run through these pretty quickly. Secondly, in addition to a great name, God promises a place of rest for his people. Now, this is the one, these are the two that I've merged, okay? Just confession. These are the two I've merged, and you'll see this in the text. But I do think it's the same concept. They're just different verbs. Here we go. Notice verses 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11, the first part of verse 11 we'll read through. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. There it is, right? I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. Same concept. So that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. So that place God promises his people is a place of rest. It's a place of peace. Verse 11, this is where we could say it's another promise, but I think it's really bound up conceptually with the same promise. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. I will give you rest from all your enemies. 
So God has already promised a great name to David. Now he promises a place of rest, a place of peace. Not just for David, but for the people of Israel, right? For all of my people, I'm going to appoint this place of peace, this place of rest. This sounds, this sounds awfully close, doesn't it, to the promise that God gave to Abraham concerning the land. It's a different word here, but I do think it's the same concept. Here it's not land, it's place. Just as God promised Abraham the promised land, a land where God's people would dwell in safety from their enemies, here he promises through David a place of peace, a place of rest. Third, in addition to a great name and a place of rest, God promises David offspring. Offspring. Again, if you're familiar with Genesis 12, it's, it's concept by concept through the promise God gave to Abraham. God promises here, David, offspring. Observe the second part of verse 11 and verse 12. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. You see that change? What was David's desire? Younger worshipers, remember this. David desired to build a house for the Lord. And here the Lord says, you're not going to build me a house, I'm going to build you a house. The accent throughout this text, the accent and the emphasis falls on the activity of the Lord. It does not fall on the activity of David. David is a recipient of God's promise and blessing. So again, Second part of verse 11, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will, there it is, raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now, I mentioned this a moment ago, at least I intimated it. This is a play on words. David expressed the desire to build a physical house, temple for the Lord, a place in which the ark of God could be stored, a place in which the ark of God could rest among God's people. Okay, that's David's desire. That's what he calls a house. But here, God promises a different kind of house. And God says house, same word, to play on words. You're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. God means offspring. He means family. And we'll see in a moment, he means dynasty. I will build you a house. And as I mentioned a moment ago, just as God promised Abraham offspring, remember that's, that really is the epicenter of what God does promise Abraham, is offspring. So the promise of God to David centered on offspring. All right? Fourth. Fourth. We'll do a few more here. Still answering the question, what did God promise in the text? Fourth, God promised that David's offspring will build God a house. God promises that David's offspring will build God a house. David, you will not build a house. However, your offspring will. Verse 13, part A, God says this, He, that is your offspring, 
he shall build a house for my name. Fifth. Fifth. In addition to a great name, a place of rest for his people, in addition to offspring, and that offspring building God a house, fifth, God promises to be a father to David's offspring. He promises to be a father to David's offspring. Notice verse 14, part A. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is interesting. I want to jump to fulfillment at this point. We're not going to do that. We're still talking about what God promised. But I cannot wait to get to fulfillment here. This person is going to be your son, David, but more properly, he's going to be my son. Now, how much of this did David actually understand? Not as much as us. He does now. He didn't then. And we'll come full circle here in just a few moments. So the offspring of David will not merely be the son of David. He will be the son of God. And then finally, finally, in addition to a great name, a place of rest for God's people, and offspring of David who will build God's house as God's son. We have five now. Here's the sixth. God promises an eternal kingdom. The kingdom that God is giving to David and the kingdom God is giving to David's offspring will be an eternal kingdom. Glance with me at verse 16, if you would. Verse 16, in your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Forever before me. Unending, your throne shall be established forever. So God's promise to David was eternal. Now, additionally, I want you to revisit with me this, this emphasis and this accent in the text because this transition, uh, transitions us into fulfillment. Now, notice this again. God nowhere says in the text, if you do this, I will do that. He never says that. In 2 Samuel 7, God never says to David, you know what? If you will obey me, then I will do these things. We're going to look at a text in just a moment where it actually does appear like that. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But in 2 Samuel 7, we are led to believe that there is nothing David can do. And there is nothing one of David's sons can do that would jeopardize the fulfillment of God's promise. This promise appears to be unconditional. Perhaps more accurate, this promise appears to be unilateral. In other words, it depends on God alone. I will do this without your help. That's how it appears in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Well, the second broader question we're going to ask and answer together in addition to what did God promise, we've got these six aspects of God's promise. The second question is, how did God fulfill this promise? Let's turn to that question now together for a few moments. How did God fulfill this promise to David? And what I'm going to do, again, if you've been with us, 
It's, uh, again, part of the same song. We're going to give you three ways God fulfilled or is fulfilling this promise. Okay, so if you're jotting these down, three subpoints, three answers to the question, how did God fulfill the promise? First, first, there was a partial fulfillment. God partially fulfilled his promise to David in Solomon. God partially fulfilled his promise to David in Solomon. And it was partial. It was inadequate. We're going to see why. After all, Solomon did build a permanent temple, as it were, in 1 Kings chapters 5 and 6. You may recall this if you're familiar with the Old Testament. 1 Kings chapter 5 and 6, Solomon builds a permanent dwelling place for the ark of God, which is precisely what David requested. And God said, no, one of your sons is going to build my house. But I want you to listen to the words of David in 1 Chronicles 28, 6 and 7. 1 Chronicles 28, 6 and 7. David describes what God said to him concerning Solomon, his son. Here's what he says. God said to me, it is Solomon, your son, who shall build my house and my courts. Notice this, for I have chosen him to be my son. Did you hear that? What was a part of the promise that God gave to David, that his offspring would be God's son? And here, in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verses 6 and 7, God says, your son Solomon is going to build a house for my name. I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. Now, that's significant. If we're reading through the Old Testament, and perhaps we don't have the lens of the gospel, perhaps we don't yet have this robust understanding of the coming of Jesus Christ, we might be tempted to believe that here it is, the fulfillment of God's promise to David has arrived in the son named Solomon and in his kingdom. And then verse 7, 1 Chronicles 28, verse 7, here's what God said to David concerning Solomon. I will establish his kingdom forever if he continues strong in keeping my commandments and my rules as he is today. I don't miss that. We did not find a condition in 2 Samuel 7. Here, we find a condition introduced. Solomon's kingdom will be established forever if he continues strong in keeping God's commandments and God's rules. So we have this tension now, okay? This tension develops in the Old Testament, and it is not resolved until Jesus Christ. Here's the tension. On the one hand, God's promise is unconditional. It's unilateral, God says, I'm going to accomplish this, David. You're not going to accomplish this. On the other hand, there are these conditions introduced. Yeah, if that son continues in obedience to me, his kingdom will last forever, just as I promised. Now, this tension brings us to the fundamental fulfillment of God's promise. We've said We've said that God fulfilled his promise partially in Solomon, but second, God fundamentally fulfilled his promise, finally fulfilled his promise, essentially fulfilled his promise 
in Jesus Christ. Let me read to you a text of the New Testament and then perhaps another one or so, and we'll see how all of this converges on Christ. Consider a popular text this time of year, Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33, where Gabriel, the angel, declares concerning Jesus these words. He will be great. He will be great. Sounds like a great name to me. And will be called the Son of the Most High. Remember God said, He will be to me a son. I will be to him a father. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Verse 33, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Sounds an awful lot, doesn't it? Like 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, this tension I mentioned a moment ago, on the one hand, God promising. The fulfillment of this promise is dependent on me entirely, God says. I'm going to do it. On the other hand, God's saying, oh, look, Solomon's kingdom will last forever if he continues in obedience to me. How is this tension finally resolved? Well, it's resolved in the God who promised becoming the human king who must fulfill the condition. You see? You can't make sense of this without Christ. That's the point. Christ is the key to understanding how all of these promises converge in magnificent ways. The God who promised unilaterally, I will, I will, I will. David, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. I'm going to establish your kingdom. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to raise up your offspring. That offspring is going to be to me a son. I will be to him a father. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. I will do these things becoming, becoming a human being in the lineage of David and fulfilling the conditions of the promise. This is why... One of the reasons why, many reasons, this is one of the reasons why it is so important to understand that Jesus Christ lived without sin. He did not sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. The God-man fulfilled the conditions of the covenant and fulfilled the covenant promises as God, you see. number of texts we could mention here. I'll mention to you this one. Matthew 22 in the New Testament, where again, this, this emphasis of Jesus being God and a descendant of David. Jesus, Jesus being David's God and David's son is found in Matthew 22, verses 41 to 45. You don't have to turn there. You're welcome to. Jesus asks the Pharisees a question. Love this question. What do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Messiah? You spend a lot of time talking about him, a lot of time reading about him. You're experts in the scriptures. What do you think? And he adds a follow-up question. Whose son is he? 
They answered, the son of David. Now, stop there for just a second. Were they right? Yes. Yes, they were right. And inadequate. It was a correct and insufficient answer. He is indeed the son of David. Jesus responds by quoting Psalm 110, verse 1, where David refers to the coming Messiah as my Lord. An odd thing to say to your son. And then Jesus says, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? In other words, in other words, the Messiah was to be David's son and David's Lord, David's descendant and David's God. That's precisely who Jesus is, the God-man. Let's keep moving and we'll come back to a bit of this and how this promise and fulfillment applies to us. Let's give our third answer to the second question. How did God fulfill this promise? Now, we've said first, he fulfilled his promise partially in Solomon. Second, he fulfilled his promise fundamentally in Jesus Christ. Third, some of you, if you've been here the last few weeks, you could answer this question right now. God is fulfilling his promise in us. He is fulfilling his promise in us or among us. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. Now, don't, don't forget this. 2 Samuel chapter 7, what God promised in part was that your offspring would be to me a son. I would be to him a father. Remember this? This is partially fulfilled in Solomon. This is fundamentally fulfilled in Jesus. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. Here's what Paul wrote. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Now, don't miss this part. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. God's promise to David concerning his offspring, I will be to him a father, he will be to me a son, is fundamentally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And what is Christ's by right and by nature becomes ours by adoption and by grace. You see? So those who are trusting in Jesus Christ, those who are found in Jesus Christ now, are participants in the fulfillment of God's promise to David. We could say it this way, because Solomon was referred to as God's son. In some unique sense, Solomon was God's son by position. Christ is God's son by nature. We become God's sons by grace. Additionally, I want you to consider what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4 and reading through the first part of verse 5. Peter writes these words. As you come to him, as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men. Now, remember the promise. Back back again to 2 Samuel 7, your offspring, David, will build a house for my name. Okay, now here, Peter says, as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, verse 5, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up 
as a spiritual house. As a house for the Spirit. What God promised to David, your offspring, my son, he will build a house for my name. Partially fulfilled in Solomon, not completely. Fundamentally fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is building a house by means of his death and resurrection through faith among God's people. Who is that house? We are. Brothers and sisters, we are the house promised in 2 Samuel 7. We are that spiritual house. Finally, we've looked at what God promised in the text and how God fulfilled this promise. Let's transition to our last question with the remaining few moments we have together. How does this promise and fulfillment apply to us? And we've already stepped into that just a bit, but let's unpack it together as we wrap things up. How does this promise and fulfillment apply to us? Let me give you three exhortations that I think grow naturally out of the text. First, first, trust in David's Son and Lord, Jesus Christ. Trust in David's Son according to the flesh. David's God according to the Spirit. Jesus Christ. Friends, if you've not surrendered to Jesus Christ in faith this morning, I exhort you to do so. Trust in the God who became human, who lived in perfect obedience for you and for me. In other words, who fulfilled the conditions of the promise, the conditions that Solomon could not fulfill. By the way, if you read through the Old Testament, you find out Solomon started well, ended poorly. He ended poorly. But you could have inserted any one of us in that position. Some of us can start somewhat well in God's mercy, but if left to our own devices, we will crash and burn. This is not true of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled all the conditions of the covenant promise in our place. He committed no sin for us. He died in our place as a curse before the Father on the cross. He was buried. On the third day, he was raised in glorious power bodily from the dead. Someday, he will return to this earth to finish what he started to make all things new. Friends, I exhort you this morning, this Christmas Eve morning, don't leave here without surrendering to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. And if you'd like to talk more about this, we would love to visit with you and pray alongside of you, and for you. So if you would, be so bold as to have a conversation with someone today in this church, and I would even invite you after the service as you're exiting and take a left through one of these double doors. On the right-hand side out there is that room called Crossroads. We will have an elder in that room, and perhaps even others that would love to meet you, shake your hand, talk with you about what it means to surrender to Christ and to serve Jesus Christ. Secondly, we're answering the question, how does this promise and fulfillment apply to us? In addition to trusting in David's Son and Lord Jesus Christ, second, live as members of God's house, Christians. 
live as members of God's house. Another way to say this is to say, live moment by moment as one in the presence of God. Live with an awareness that God himself has made his home within us and among us. This is actually the logic that Paul will use in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, when he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And then Paul concludes, as a result, because you house God's Spirit, glorify God with your body. This awareness that we are God's dwelling place impacts how we live, friends, whether others are watching us or whether they're not watching us. It's one thing, isn't it, to maintain public persona. It's one thing to clean up in front of other people. I know it, you know it, right? It's another thing altogether when we ask the difficult question, who am I in the privacy of my own home? Who am I when no one is watching me but the Lord? Just recently, I was convicted by the words of Christ. We do Advent worship together as a family. And um, one of the texts that we were reading together during our time of worship was Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others to be seen by them. And friends, isn't it true? I mean, just a moment of confession. Isn't it true? I, it is of me. This is constantly a temptation. Even just somewhat recently, I had a conversation with my bride, Tana. And we've been married now, well, you know, coming up. It's not what this is about. But January 3rd will be 20 years, which is tremendous for me. Maybe not for her as much, but tremendous <laughs> for me. <laughs> and the other day, a few weeks ago or so, and this is a conversation we've had throughout our marriage, I told her, I'm heartbroken when I detect hypocrisy in my own heart by God's grace, because it is indeed only by God's grace, the work of God's Spirit. When I detect hypocrisy in my own heart, and I'm someone in public, then I'm not in the privacy of my own home. A couple of comments about that. Number one is the same thing that I tell my children when I have to go to them and confess my sins to them. It is something like this. Dad needs a savior just like you do. I wasn't in need of being saved 25 years ago and am no longer in need of that salvation. I've not somehow graduated beyond the need for God's mercy and grace today. I need today the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Applied to my heart and soul. That's one thing to say to you all, because I suspect if you're honest, there is a degree of hypocrisy that you find even in your own heart, even among the most mature of followers of Jesus Christ in this room. On the other hand, as we are repenting of our sins, as we are experiencing God's grace given to us through the incarnation and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as we recognize that indeed we house the Spirit of God, 
then we actually do experience genuine transformation. I try to remember this. You know, and I say it from time to time, I've stolen this from someone. It's kind of like gas prices. You know, if you watch them day by day, there's not, there's not much change. But if you compare them over the last 20 years, they've just consistently been climbing, right? I think that's somewhat like sanctification, being conformed to the image of Christ. If you watch me day by day, if I watched you day by day, I may not see the genuine change that's really taking place. But I pray in God's mercy that if someone watches me year by year, perhaps even better, decade by decade, they're seeing someone who is living as a member of God's house. Someone who, by God's grace, is being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And that change comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So I want you to consider asking a question to your family or to close friends, okay? And then we're going to move to this last bit, this third way that this promise and fulfillment apply to us. I've gotten off just a bit. We'll get back on. Consider asking your family, your spouse, your children, close friends. Some of you are single. Parents. People who really know you. I'm talking about ask the person who really knows you. Ask them this question. Am I the same person in public that you know in private? And embrace their answer and seek God's help by the Spirit to live in a manner more consistent with who indeed you are faith in Jesus Christ, a member of God's house. Okay, that's a specific exhortation for you. And then third, in addition to trusting in David's son and Lord Jesus Christ and living as a member of God's house, third, how does this promise and fulfillment apply to us? Build God's house. Be a builder of God's house. To say it negatively, don't tear down God's people. Don't tear down the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 17 is one of the clearest and most enlightening texts about our privilege to build up the church, God's spiritual house, rather than to tear down the church. In 1 Corinthians 6, God speaks through Paul about the individual Christian being a temple of God. In 1 Corinthians 3, God speaks through Paul, about the church collectively and corporately being God's temple, God's house. And so Paul writes these words in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you, that's plural, so we would translate this in East Tennessee, right? You know how this works. Do y'all not know? That's it. Superior English here in East Tennessee. Do y'all not know that y'all are God's temple? <laughs> I mean, we laugh. I love it, though. Because you doesn't get it in English. Is it singular? Is it plural? And it's plural in the Greek. So again, go back to it. Do y'all not know that y'all are God's temple? You love it, don't you? And that God's spirit dwells in y'all. All y'all.
Excellent. Excellent, brother. If anyone destroys God's temple, I don't miss this, God will destroy him. It matters eternally how we treat the church. Eternally. How we talk about the church. How we serve or fail to serve in the church. Why? Because it's God's temple. Because God matters. And he's chosen to dwell among us. And then finally, the end of verse 17. For God's temple is holy. One more time. All y'all are that place. If we're interested in following Christ, God's son, David's offspring, who built God's house by means of dying for God's house, we too will want to build sacrificially and not tear down the church. We've answered three questions. What does God promise? God promises to David a great name, a place of rest, offspring who will build God's house as a son and an eternal kingdom. Six aspects of God's promise in the text. Secondly, we've asked and answered the question, how does God fulfill this promise? Partially in Solomon. Inadequately. Partially. Fundamentally. And finally, in Christ, and currently, in us, God's house, God's sons and daughters. How then does this apply to us? Trust in David's son and Lord, live as members of God's house, and seek to build rather than tear down God's house, the church. James Montgomery, 18th and 19th century, Christian, in the Moravian tradition, he wrote dozens of hymns. One of my favorites that he wrote goes like this, and we'll conclude meditating on these words together. Hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son. Don't you love that? Hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son. Hail in the time appointed, his reign on earth begun. He comes to break oppression, to set the captive free, to take away transgression and rule in equity. To him shall prayer unceasing and daily vows ascend, his kingdom still increasing a kingdom without end. The tide of time shall never his covenant remove. His name shall stand forever. That name to us is love. Let's pray together.